So we come this morning in our exposition of this epistle uh, to the Hebrews. We come in our study to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll be considering together that next section, verses 15, 16, and 17. So our text this morning is Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 17. We've just read the whole chapter together. I'll read again verse 15. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Our Lord Jesus Christ is so glorious, and the riches of his gospel are so full that no single description can capture them. It's interesting, is it not, that no one Old Testament sacrifice was sufficient to convey all that Jesus would be and do. Rather, there had to be multiple types of sacrifice, each of which brought out in its own hue various dimensions of who he would be and what he would do. And we could say the same with regards to the gospel, all of the different uh, dimensions and language and images and pictures and content and descriptions of that gospel. It's all necessary for us to, to have a sense of the fullness of the riches that are to be found in it. You think of the believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are so many ways in which that relationship is described. Believers are his brethren, but believers are also his bride, and believers are his children. Well, these alone are three very different uh, types of relationships that you never find altogether in a single place or person, but we do in the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I could go on to make the point, but you see it. You see all that the Lord provides for us to show us how glorious Christ is, how rich uh, the gospel is. And so we're here in Hebrews chapter 9, and really in the verses that are before us, we're taken back to chapter 8, verse 6, which says, But now hath he, that is Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. And we've seen since chapter 8, verse 6, many of the ways in which that is so, how that is so. And it continues into the section that we have here. So we're looking at verses 15, 16, and 17. As always, first of all, we need to be clear, first of all, on what the text means. And then, and only then, secondly, what the text means for me or to me. We have to be clear on what the text actually means. And I think it can be stated, these three verses, with relative simplicity, the summary of, of what is taught in verses 15, 16, and 17, is that through Christ's death, the elect receive eternal inheritance. In a short nub, that's it. Through Christ's death, the elect receive an eternal inheritance. 
well, we have an explanation of what that means and how it works and what it involves in everything else that's said in this, in this passage. And so the title of our sermon is uh, The Death of the Testator. And we're going to note three things this morning as we seek to expound this passage. First of all, we begin with a testament and a testator. First of all, a testament and a testator. And we're actually going to do what we rarely do, and that is consider the verses slightly out of order. I want to begin, first of all, with verses 16 and 17, because they provide us an explanation of what is being said in verse uh, 15. So in verses 16 and 17, it says, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. As I said at the beginning, the layers of, of Christ and the gospel are multifarious. Right? There are so many different dimension, uh, d dimensions to it. And so, too, really with the doctrine of, of the covenant. There are many facets and dimensions uh, to the doctrine of the covenant. We've covered uh, a great deal of that over uh, not only our study of Hebrews, but over the years, various aspects of the covenant. But we have here one Greek word, and that, that one Greek word is translated in our version 33 times as covenant, and the same Greek word is translated 20 times as testament. So sometimes covenant, sometimes testament. And that, that reflects the fact that there is a semantic range with this, with regards to this uh, Greek word. It is one word that can convey different concepts. And so you think of covenant, all that we know and have learned and have been taught and catechized in and so on with regards to the doctrine of the covenant. And you contrast it with the concept of of testament. They're obviously related and, and overlapping, but they are distinct. We think of covenant as, among other things, an agreement between two parties. There's something bilateral about that. Whereas with a testament, it's unilateral, right? It is one person conveying something to, to someone else. And so there, there are distinctions that are there. And here in our, our translation, it is rightly, the word is rightly translated testament. That's spot on. That's exactly how it should be translated in this context. That is what the Lord himself, the Holy Spirit, is pushing to the fore of, of, our, of our attention. And so, children, the question that you have, of course, is this. What is a testament? You know, we're speaking about a testament and a testator, one who issues a testament. So what, what is a testament then? That's pretty key to our understanding uh, what exactly is being described here? Well, children, sometimes you'll hear the phrase last will and testament. So a person dies and the family and others gather and uh, there's this opening up of the, the last will and testament of the person who has died. And in that document, there'll be a description of what they owned and who gets what and so on and so forth. And so you can picture it, you know, it could be a wealthy landowner, but it really could be anyone at all. And they desire to bequeath or to leave uh, his property and possessions 
to other people after his, his death. And so he, he plans ahead and he divides up and assigns various portions of his, of his estate uh, to, to other people. But you'll notice in verses 16 and 17 that it tells us the testator must die before the, tra- before the transfer of his goods. That it's, it's the testament, this, this document that says who gets what, is only in force afterward, after he dies. Indeed, the passage says in verse 17, otherwise it is of no strength after, at all while the testator liveth. Now, why would that be the case? We understand what a testament is, this last will and testament. Why is it that it wouldn't be of any force as long as the one who wrote it is, is still living? Well, the reason is simple, children. It's because if, if, if the, the owner of the property, the, the testator, the one who's written this testament, if he is still alive, then he still owns everything, not the other people, right? It's still in, in his possession. And it could be altered as long as, as he lives. But it is when he dies, and only when he dies, that the stuff, his stuff, becomes their stuff. It is when he dies that it is permanently, finally, definitively binding once the person dies. So you can see it. You understand the concept. It's, it's not terribly complicated. We have both a testament being described here and the testator. So to take that that uh, picture which is drawn from human experience and to plug it into what's being described here in our passage, the testator is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The heirs are described in our passage as the cold, those who are cold. And the goods that are conveyed are all of the riches that are to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is brought into effect at the death of, of Jesus Christ. And the testament itself is the gospel. It is the gospel. The content is gospel content itself. And so we begin with a testament and a testator. So already our expectations are being raised. You to extend the analogy, you think of uh, heirs of perhaps a, a very wealthy person. There's, you know, an anticipation of what is coming. They're thinking and they're planning, perhaps, and they're making decisions. They're anticipating what is going to come to them in, dear, in due course. And for the Lord's people, there's this there's sense of anticipation. In the Old Testament, the anticipation had a growing intensity of momentum. The Lord had given to them gospel promises in so many ways, one of which was the ceremonial system that we've been considering throughout the book of Hebrews, but other things as well through God's word and the prophets telling them of all that Christ would be and do, of of the final sacrifice for sin to which all the other lambs and goats and calves and so on merely pointed forward. There was an anticipation of all that was yet to come. And for the believing people of God on this side of the cross, 
the cross has come and all that, uh, that the Lord Jesus came to do has been uh, secured. But there is yet anticipation for the peop people of God today, isn't there? Not anticipation of his death, which is once for all finished and done forever, but an anticipation of all that we have in him, all that we've already received, all that we presently are receiving, and all that we will yet receive in him and through him and by him alone. And so there's an anticipation. Our, our interest is piqued. Our hopes are raised. And there is a desire to peer into the things that the Lord describes here. And so we begin briefly with a testament and a testator. But then secondly, moving to the, the details, we have the death of the testator. This is at the heart, as I said at the beginning, of what is being communicated here. The death of the testator. Verse 15, going back to the beginning. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. So he's explaining Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is explaining something of the significance of Christ's death, why he died, and, and what it means in terms of its implications. He says in verse 15, and for this cause. And so you, you take uh, what is preceded, what we saw last week and before, what he's saying here in this passage, you pull all these things together. What is this? What is the cause? that he's describing. It is because of Christ's superior sacrifice. It is because of the efficacy of that sacrifice, the unparalleled nature of that sacrifice, that he alone has been appointed the mediator of the New Testament. And it is because only by means of his death is redemption secured that he is appointed the mediator of the New Testament. It's for this cause or causes, if you will. And so he's described as the mediator of the New Testament. Children, you know that a mediator is one, a person who stands between two parties, two po parties that are at odds with each other, two parties that are against each other, hostility, enmity against one another. And the mediator stands in the middle between these two, the middleman, in order to bring about reconciliation between these two parties, to, to remove the enmity and to bring fellowship. And so here is Christ. He's the mediator. He, he interposed. And in the sacrifice that he provides in himself and in the intercession that he provides, and in all of the other features of his redemptive work, he reconciles sinners unto God. He removes everything that separated them, namely their sin, and he purchases for them all of the saving riches that are necessary to bring them into friendship and fellowship with the living God himself. And so he assumes responsibility for all of their debt and he pays it in full. 
He takes to himself the full penalty and punishment for all of their sins and pays it in full in his sacrifice and death. And he provides out of his own righteous record a perfect righteousness with which to clothe his people and much more. And so we're seeing all these things being brought together in, in these last couple of chapters that, you know, here is the Lord Jesus Christ and he's the surety of his people. We had a whole sermon on that. We've seen over and over that he's the priest for his people. We're seeing that he is the sacrifice for his people. In relationship to the covenant, we see that he's the messenger of the covenant. He's the testator of the covenant. He's the mediator of the covenant. All of these things are fleshing out for us a, full, a fuller understanding that for the believer who says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, those who say that, that the surpassing excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus excels everything else in all the world, the Lord is coming to those and saying, well, then let me. Let me open it for you. Let me flesh it out. Let me deepen your acquaintance, not only intellectually, but experimentally with who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We're told for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death. As it's going to go on to tell us, the death specifically of himself, the death of the testator. It is by means of death. As we noted recently, how overwhelmingly dreadful sin in its essence and nature must truly be. How overwhelmingly dreadful it be, must be. After all, the wages of sin are death. There's nothing greater in terms of human existence in this world than death. You can lose your job, you can lose people, you can lose your money, you can lose your health, you can lose all sorts of things. But death is the, is the final thing, right? The wages of sin is death. Sin kills everywhere in its wake. It has a killing influence upon bodies and souls, upon every facet and aspect of people and society and so on and so forth. It's dreadful. And the stains of sin which penetrate the whole person of fallen men and women, boys and girls, those stains can't be scrubbed out or expunged or in any way removed other than by blood. As we'll see more next week. It's by blood, Christ's blood alone, that they're cleansed. And so we think of sin we say, well, how horrific it is, is it? We go back to the early pages of Genesis. Boom. The Lord brings the flood. That great deluge, which sweeps away with it the entirety of mankind, save eight souls. So dreadful is sin. We see the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah, scorched to ash with fire and brimstone poured out from heaven with only a lot and his few saved. We think of things like the exile and other things, and these pictures, they convey to us, don't they? Or even 70 AD with Jerusalem and other things. We, it conveys to us how horrific sin must be. But nothing 
ever, nothing anywhere can ever convey it to us like the cross. Everything else pales in comparison to show us the nature of sin by means of death. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ who freely and willingly and voluntarily assumes to himself the role of the sin-bearer. He subjects himself to having all of the sins of God's people credited, attributed, imputed to his own account. And there he stands alone as the mediator, as the sin-bearer. We're told that he he trod the winepress alone. And he was subjected in his isolation, upheld, as we saw, by the Spirit, but forsaken of all men and forsaken of God. He bore up under, in his death, the outpouring of the wrath of Almighty God and the sentence of eternal damnation and death visited upon him as a substitute in the place of his people, drinking, as we say, hell dry on their behalf by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. Redemption, children, remember, redemption is to be liberated Right? It's a word that conveys freedom. It conveys being set, set free. But it's, it's liberation by being bought back, by being purchased, paid for, by being redeemed, by, being, by someone paying a ransom on our, our behalf person can come and discharge a debt by buying it out. And so they say, this, this person's debt, you sign the entire thing over to me. I will assume full responsibility for, the discharge, for, the, for this debt. Did the person who's signing it, did they create the debt? No. Did they contribute to that? No. The person who accumulated the debt, they bear all the responsibility and culpability. But you have one saying, sign it over to me. I'll assume the whole thing and I will pay in full every last penny myself out of my resources in order to remove it. This is the picture, the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the facets of what redemption includes. He is ultimately delivered for our offenses, for the offenses of his believing people. He's delivered for Not what he has done, not anything that he has contributed, but for our offenses. But the fact that by means of death, he secures redemption, shows us something of the the amazing efficacy of Christ's death. That, That Christ's death is able, was able, to in fact secure fully, completely, definitively, absolutely, and forever, the completed redemption of all of his people. And it says in this passage that he 
redeemed, he paid for the sins of his Old Testament saints. Notice the language, don't pass over it. For the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. And so we come to the cross, it is both retrospective and simultaneously prospective. It's both of these things. That, that he is securing redemption for all who ever believe upon him, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you think of those Old Testament saints, right? They had sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And when they brought those sacrifices, they were acknowledging their guilt of sin. They were saying in the offering of that sacrifice that they themselves were worthy to die like this animal was, was worthy to die. In fact, in bringing this sacrifice, they are signing with their own handwriting their declaration of guilt. You have that language, don't we, in Colossians 2, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And so the believing Old Testament saint who, who had the, a new heart and faith and was regenerated and so on, they, in these ordinances, of course, were looking through them and above them to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They weren't looking at the beast and saying, well, this is somehow going to save me. It's, it's the Messiah who's going to save me that's, that's actually being depicted here. And so they're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the question still lingers in our minds. I'm sure it does for some of you, as it does for me. Why this limitation? Why the limitation given in this, in this verse? Why does it say, for the, redemption of the, uh, uh, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament? Why that limitation of the first testament? Why is that being spoken of here? Well, we could say, as I've already noted, well, because then if it's true for them, then how much more is it true? For everyone who comes after Christ. But I think there's more than that. And let me tell you. One reason I think that it is. This, this particular language is given by the Holy Spirit. Is because the apostle. As you well know. We've been in Hebrews soaking in it for a, quite a long while now. The apostle has been stressing. And repeating. And reinforcing. And pressing so hard in everything that he's saying, that the Levitical sacrifices could not remove guilt. Right? That emphasis has been to the forefront. These Levitical sacrifices in and of themselves could never remove guilt, could never, as we just heard in the previous text, cleanse the conscience from its dead works. So because that has been the dominant influence, he specifically highlights the fact that by means of death, the Lord Jesus Christ secures the redemption for those under the First Testament. Don't think that though those animals were unable to do anything as pertains to their conscience regarding guilt and its removal. Don't conclude, therefore, 
that that's the end of the story because Christ has redeemed them under the Old Testament by his blood. So you see what happens. It removes doubt, doesn't it? It removes doubt, even for perhaps Old Testament believers who, who struggled in their faith and who, you know, they're using the ordinances and so on and so forth. And there's this lingering fear in the back of their minds about whether they are saved, will be saved, and so on and so forth. Here we're told they are saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where it doesn't matter what era you live in. The believer is brought back to this again and again. For the, the believer who, 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 who's bowed down under the fears and forebodings and uncertainties and disquietness of soul of whether or not I am redeemed, whether or not I am in a state of grace. Among other things, the Lord brings the believer back to the foot of the cross, points in the pages of Scripture to the Lamb of God who has been sacrificed for the sins of his people and speaks this word to us by means of death, by means of that death for the redemption of, tra of the transgressions. We might be recipients of the inheritance and then, of course, as I've noted, another reason is if this redemption is theirs under the Old Testament, then how much more is it ours under the New Testament? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to forgive us and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. How much more is it true for us as well? Where does that leave us? Well, to come back and plug this into the pictures that we've been seeing here in chapter 9. Aaron couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies without blood. So you have the picture of the throne of God in the ark, the mercy seat, the inner sanctum, a picture of the presence of God, of, of heaven itself. Aaron can't enter. He, he can't come in without blood. He's unable <clears throat> to go in without the shedding of blood. And you plug then what we're hearing here about the death of the testator and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ it reinforces for every one of you and for me too. When we turn our attention from the figure, the picture, the, um, the symbol of the real, of heaven, it means that you, my friend, cannot enter into the inner sanctum of God's presence. You cannot enter into the throne room of heaven without blood. And so that's the searching question for us, isn't it? The passage is saying by means of death, Christ's death. The searching question is, have I been sprinkled with the blood? Has the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice 
been appropriated and applied to my own soul? Have I or have I not come to Christ on his own terms, come to Christ with his own provision, come to Christ with Christ himself, and said, he alone is all. His sacrifice alone is sufficient. His, the shedding of his blood alone is able to atone for all of my sins. His redemptive work alone can remove my native enmity and hostility against God. And out of his abundant riches convey to me that reconciliation and fellowship with him. Right? Where does it leave us? It leaves us looking to the Lamb. It leaves us raising our eyes to the Lamb, to the substitute who stands hoisted up between heaven and earth, lifted up in order that he might draw sinners unto himself. Here is the Lamb of God, the mediator, who is lifted up before our eyes as the substitute in the place of his people. And we're, we're left to kind of fall back in a sense of astonishment at the glorious plan. Lord, tell it to us again. You know, tell us again this good news. Lord, tell us this part of it. Tell us it from this angle. Lord, give to us this other aspect. But whatever you do, tell me again and again and again. Let me hear this glorious plan that has been brought to pass through the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and through the work of the mediator of the New Testament, who brings people into the most precious privileges ever known through Christ and a share with Christ in the fellowship that, is takes, that exists within the Trinity itself. Well, for those of you who are in a state of grace, what conceivable response could there ever be to such love? Don't give me a pat answer. What conceivable response is there to this love? You let your mind run in this direction, that direction, and the other direction. You know, what, what amount of praise is sufficient out of love and gratitude for all that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is, there's no response that is sufficient to such love. There's, there's no amount of praise. If we exhausted the praise of all of the, elects perpe the elect perpetually every, every split second of time in this world and eternity to come, it's still not sufficient praise. Well, where does that leave you, Christian? That leaves you saying once again, you've been here before, he gave all. He gave absolutely all by the grace of God. Let us give all to him. By his grace, let us give absolutely everything and withholding absolutely nothing to him. That brings us thirdly to the inheritance of the heirs. 
We have a testament and a testator. We have the death of the testator. Thirdly, we have the inheritance of the heirs, verse 15, the second half. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The heirs are described as the called. It's the language of our text. But that is a reference to effectual calling. So children, you're learning your catechism, you're laying up all this good theology in your, in your mind. Go back to that question, what is effectual calling? Because that is what's being described here in verse 15. It is effectual call. It is those who are and have been truly converted. Not just those who are outwardly called. Not just those who sit under the heralding of the gospel of free grace and the offers of Christ Jesus in that gospel. But rather those who have been brought into a saving union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Abraham, who was saved by faith. Chapter 11, verse 8, but by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not, know, not knowing whither he went. So the children of Abraham are called out of the world, out of the bondage of sin, out from under the dominion of Satan. They're called, and as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, they are called with a holy calling. They are brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ with new hearts and transformed lives by the grace of God and the gospel. We're told that they receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We've heard about the eternal covenant. We saw in verse 12 this eternal redemption. We've heard about the eternal spirit in verse 14. Here in verse 15, we have an eternal Inheritance, And this really, in, in many ways, I think, is the goal. This is the, this is the goal uh, toward which the Apostle Paul has been moving. Right? He's, been, he's been moving and pushing and momentum growing toward this conclusion. Right? The focus here is on certainty. The focus is on the certainty of not a temporal, but an eternal inheritance. That for the believer, it, as, it is as good as having it in hand at present. Right? A person, to use the, the analogy employed in our text, a person can, can have the will. Right? They can have the testament in hand after the person, the, 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 the testator has died. And they can say, it's mine. What's been left to me is mine. Here's the last will and testament. It's mine, all of it, by, by legal right. And so my point is that, that there's an emphasis on certainty. It is certain that this eternal inheritance isn't, isn't a possibility, isn't you know, a maybe, isn't something that we're kind of hoping maybe sort of will come to us at some point. But no, he's saying it's absolutely true. You know, the, the Lord promised the Old Testament saints an inheritance, temporal one, a, a land. 
and he delivered it. But they weren't, the believer in the Old Testament wasn't so foolish as to look at that piece of real estate as an end in itself. You know from Hebrews chapter 11, which we'll come to, that we're told in, in verse 16, but now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Well, it's, it's that, that inheritance that's being referred to. The totality of all that is purchased in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, right? The inheritance is that so great salvation that was described in chapter 2 and verse 3. It is an inheritance which reinforces in your mind it is without merit. You didn't pay for this. You didn't earn this. You don't deserve this in and of yourself. For the believer, you've been adopted into the family and you've been made co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so you are given an inheritance in and through and by him. And that can be seen in so many different angles. The inheritance is everything that Christ provides in himself and in his work. Both what is had and enjoyed and experimentally savored in the present moment. And all that is yet to come. In the life and world to come. In glory. Both now and later. It includes both grace and and glory, right? Grace is glory begun. Glory is grace in its consummation. And <laughs> so the believer can say, this so great salvation, every bit of it and all of it, as pertains to the soul, as pertains to the body, as pertains to now, as pertains to later, all of the dimensions of privilege and, and uh, all that is so precious to us. It's all there. We've sipped from the Lord's cup of salvation. And it is sweet. And yet he comes to us as the mediator of the covenant. And Jesus says, remember, I always have, still do, and will save the best wine for last. I save the best wine for last. And that all of the hope of glory and heaven and all that it entains, uh, contains with regards to the sight of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, the inexpressible intensity of joy, the resurrected body, the sinlessness of worship and devotion, everything that that entails and all of its growing features and its duration for all of eternity, he says it's yours. And you know it for certain. The testator has died. We're told that it comes by promise. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Why, why by promise? Very quickly. Several things, I think, that especially um, need to be highlighted. Why by promise? In order to show the freeness of this eternal inheritance. It comes by promise to show the freeness of it. Right? It's, it's not by works or by earning it. It's by promise in order to show the security of it unto God's heirs, unto the called. It, it, the promise shows the security. Why? Because who's promised? God has. 
God is absolutely, infinitely, eternally, unchangeably faithful. He is veracity. He is true. And so it's impossible for the promise not to be fulfilled. You can't lose it. And so it reinforces the security. But it also comes by promise in order to, sh to show that it is by faith, that it is received. This inheritance is received by faith. Chapter 4, verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And it has to be received by faith. You see in chapter 11, this of course is hit over and over and over again. Verse 13, verse 17, and so on and so forth. And so it's by promise to show that it has to be appropriated. It has to be received. We have to come into the possession of it by the exercise of faith in order to receive the fulfillment of it. All of this is underlined in the fact that the inheritance comes to us by promise. The foundation is seen in Christ's death. The consummation is seen in Christ's second coming, in the state of glory in heaven. But at the very center of it is Christ himself. And so if you begin to weave the various pieces together that we've spoken of here, what do we find? We find in summary, God designed an eternal inheritance. He conveyed that, that, that by promise. He brings it to those who are the cold. There's an obstacle. The transgressions, their transgressions. And so we see the ground of removing that obstacle. There is a mediator. And there is means. His death. The death of the testator. And so by his death, the called are redeemed. And as a consequence, in the end, they receive that eternal inheritance. This is the flow of thought. It is through Christ's death that God's people have an eternal inheritance. The death of the testator is what's brought to the fore in this particular passage. For the Lord's people, this, this word comes to us under this third point. It comes to us in order to loosen our grip on everything that is not Christ. We cling to people, we cling to relationships, we cling to circumstances, we cling to stuff, we cling to all sorts of things. And the Lord says, let me show you what I've provided in my son. And when we catch a glimpse of that eternal inheritance, it does loosen the grip of our heart from everything else. It is worth everything to live for him, unto him. It is worth everything to live as a recipient of that eternal inheritance. It is worth it to wait for the best that is yet to come. The Lord works in us. Our eyes are so often cast down. We're looking within our own wrecked souls. We're looking at our feet. We're looking at what's going on around us. We're looking at all sorts of stuff. 
And in the preaching of Christ and him crucified, the Lord says, look at this. Look at me. Keep your eyes on Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty God in heaven, we come in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we extol and exalt him as the only redeemer. We come, O Lord, rejoicing in him, in his ignoble death, and in all of the riches that are secured by him and in him, for the eternal inheritance bequeathed to thy people, the called of God. We pray, O Lord, help us to lift our eyes to him. Magnify the Son, set him before our eyes, the eyes of our souls, and grant that the Spirit would show us all that is to be found in him through the word, through the scriptures. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.